According to a new scientific advisory, in some forms of out-of-hospital sudden cardiac arrest, bystanders are now encouraged to immediately perform continuous chest compressions as cardiopulmonary resuscitation. How can this advisory increase survival rates after these harrowing cardiac events? You are listening to ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I am your host, Dr. Mark Nolan-Hill, Professor of Surgery at Chicago Medical School, and our guest today is Dr. Michael Sayer, Associate Professor of Emergency Medicine at the Ohio State University College of Medicine. Dr. Sayer is the lead author of New Recommendations for Bystanders, providing CPR after a sudden cardiac arrest. Welcome, Dr. Sayer. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Today we are discussing the latest recommendations for bystanders performing CPR. Dr. Sayer, the most recent guidelines in the journal Circulation refer to five key human studies comparing bystander compression-only CPR with conventional CPR. How did these studies impact the current advisory? Three of those studies were published in 2007 and were much larger than the two earlier studies from the early 1990s. All three of the studies came to the same conclusion, which was that cardiac arrest victims who had any form of CPR were about twice as likely to live than if they had no CPR at all. But it didn't seem to matter what kind of CPR they got. Victims who received just chest compressions did about the same as those who received chest compressions and rescue breathing. Why do you think that is? I think that reflects a couple of things. One is that chest compressions really are the critical part of CPR for most cardiac arrest victims who have a reasonable chance of survival, and those are the patients who have witnessed ventricular fibrillation events. What cases of cardiac arrest is the hands-only technique not recommended? The research studies that we do have to base our recommendations on focused mostly on witnessed cardiac arrest cases. And when you say witnessed cardiac arrest, could you define that? Sure. A witnessed case is one in which the rescuer or someone, the witness, hears or sees the victim collapse. And why is that so important? The reason that matters is because 9 out of 10 of those events will begin as ventricular fibrillation events. And in that case, the victim took a breath and then had the sudden development of ventricular tachycardia or ventricular fibrillation and quit perfusing their brain and therefore passed out. But their lungs are still filled with air from that last breath, and that air contains oxygen. And there's also oxygenated red cells sitting in the heart and in the great vessels that chest compressions could pump to the brain. And in an unwitnessed cardiac arrest? Well, with unwitnessed arrest, you basically just don't know is the problem. So many of those cases will still be ventricular fibrillation, but it may have degraded to a systole by that time. Or the primary cause could be an asphyxial cause, such as choking. And without doing rescue breathing and chest compressions, there's not a good way to know. Is that why in children or drowning or airway obstruction, hands-only technique is not recommended? Partly that's why, and partly it's because we just don't have good evidence. So we've tried to be consistent with the science and make a recommendation that's based on the science that we have. And we just don't have as much information about those other sorts of causes of cardiac arrest. We have some information from animal studies that suggests that for 
asphyxial events in either in children or in adults, be they drowning or choking or other asphyxial causes, rescue breathing plus chest compressions does result in better outcomes in animal models of cardiac arrest than does chest compressions alone. But even in those cases, chest compressions alone are still better than nothing. What about us physicians? Should we continue to do conventional CPR with both cardiac massage as well as uh, breathing? Well, again, at this point, we have no convincing evidence to alter our existing recommendations for healthcare professionals. So the research that I'm referring to was all done out of the hospital with a wide variety of different sorts of rescuers and a wide variety of different kinds of patients. And there are really no head-to-head studies comparing 30 to 2 CPR with 30 compressions and two breaths to compression-only CPR when done by health professionals of any kind, be they doctors, nurses, paramedics. You know, generally speaking, what are the current survival rates after an out-of-hospital sudden cardiac event? Well, that's a good question because it really matters a lot where you are. And by that, I mean if you are in a few cities in the United States, your survival rate is much higher than if you're in other cities. So if you're in Seattle, King County, Rochester, Minnesota, and a few other places, then your chances of survival, if you're found in ventricular fibrillation, touch 50%. But in most communities in the United States, the chances of survival from a ventricular fibrillation cardiac arrest is probably about 15%. And why is it that big difference? I think there are several reasons. One is bystanders in those few communities have had more training and are more likely to begin CPR than in most of the country. I think in those places also the EMS system as well as the hospitals are quite frankly doing a better job and therefore patient outcomes are better. If you have just joined us, you are listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM157. I am your host, Dr. Mark Nolan Hill, and with me today is Dr. Michael Sayer, Associate Professor of Emergency Medicine at the Ohio State University College of Medicine. We are discussing new recommendations for bystanders performing CPR. Dr. Sayer, do most physicians believe that bystander involvement helps? I think most physicians believe that there is a minority that I've had the occasion to run into who seem to believe that CPR really doesn't work. And I think that's based on their personal experience. When they gave it, the patient died. But at some level, that can easily become a self-fulfilling prophecy. If you don't think it works, you don't try very hard, and therefore, of course, the patient doesn't survive. Why do you think we're changing in the journal circulation of a hands-only advisory now, which in the past, we didn't talk about it as much? Well, I think partly it's just based on the timing of the research. So we now have three large cohort studies that seem to show similar outcomes. We know that one of the key barriers for why bystanders don't do CPR is the perception on their end that it's way too complicated. And if the outcomes are approximately the same, the hands-only approach is much simpler, and therefore we're hopeful that that's going to result in more bystander action and more lives saved. Is there a relationship between where the cardiac arrest occurs and the either reluctance or enthusiasm of bystanders to initiate cardiopulmonary resuscitation? There is, but it's probably not what you might think. Most cardiac arrests occur in the patient's own home. 75% of them are in residential settings. But you're more likely to actually get CPR if you have a cardiac arrest in a public place 
and the witness is more likely a stranger than if the witness is a member of your own family. Why is that? Well, I think it's a couple of reasons. First of all, in a public place, there are more witnesses. So odds are better that you're going to have somebody nearby that's actually had some training and knows what to do. So that's part of it. Part of it is the witnesses tend to be younger and therefore maybe a little more physically capable and might jump in a little more easily and try to do something. The average age of a cardiac arrest victim is typically about 60. And so their spouse is roughly the same age and may have their own physical limitations that can prevent them from acting. Do people ever get the deer in the headlights type of phenomenon where they see this and they just can't react? Absolutely. And I think that also is a reason why CPR in the home is more of a challenge. Clearly, one of the main reasons that members of the public don't act is panic. Well, how can you educate members of the public to respond? Well, I'm not a psychologist, so I'm not really sure how to handle the panic problem. But we know the other key reason that people don't act is a sense that they're not competent. They feel like they're not going to be able to help because they won't do it right, so to speak. And for those folks, we want them to know that, hey, you can only help. Please try this that even if you don't do it perfectly, something is definitely better than nothing, and you're not going to make the person worse. In other words, even if you do it poorly, it's still better than nothing? Correct. And we have good evidence for that, actually. So, I mean, clearly good CPR is better than not-so-good CPR, but any CPR is better than none. Now, if you are by yourself and you have a cell phone with you, which should you do first, call 911 or start the CPR? You should, almost always, you should call 911. And the reason is because most events are ventricular fibrillation, caused events. And the chest compressions are basically buying time until a defibrillator can be brought to the victim and provide a shock. So your number one goal there is to get somebody to get you a defibrillator. And in most communities, the best way to do that is to call 911 so the firemen or policemen or paramedics will bring one to you. What if you're in a place like a school or a health facility and the EMS are not there yet, but someone brings you an AED machine. Should you try to use it or just continue chest compression? No, in those cases, you definitely want to switch over and use the AED. So as soon as there's a defibrillator available, we encourage rescuers to use it. Even if they're untrained? Correct, yes. And ideally, in a, in a situation like you described, there's more than one person there. So Someone can continue to do chest compressions while the other person's getting the defibrillator hooked up, and then that way the victim has the best possible chance. If you have to do rescue breathing because of drowning or airway obstruction, and you don't have a mouthpiece, and you really don't want to take a chance for infection, is there any simple way to protect yourself? Well, I guess my uh, answer to that is, in those cases, I think you should do chest compressions. So if you're not comfortable giving rescue breaths, then it's better to do the chest compressions than it is to do nothing. And as I understand it, the next scheduled review of CPR guidelines is 2010. What can we expect from this continued discussion as we look ahead with this? Our European colleagues have decided to stay with their current recommendations regarding hands-only CPR, which is that it should only be used if the rescuer is unable or unwilling to give rescue breaths. And I anticipate a spirited debate with them and with other rescue resuscitation groups from around the world. But in the end, I believe that we'll see a continued emphasis on chest compressions because the data that's starting to come in is 
very supportive that the change we made in 2005 to increase the number of chest compressions is saving lives. Why is there not a general consensus around the world about this? Well, I think partly it's the nature of the evidence that we have. These are cohort studies. They're not randomized clinical trials. And so clearly there are differences between the two groups that may confound the results. And reasonable people can disagree on how best to handle those sorts of differences. I want to thank our guest, Dr. Michael Sayer. We've been discussing new recommendations for bystanders performing CPR. I'm Dr. Mark Nolan Hill, and you have been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. Be sure to visit our website at reachmd.com, now featuring on-demand podcasts of our entire library. For comments and questions, please send your email to xm at reachmd.com. And thank you for listening.